Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space, and one of our bonus episodes. That's right, we haven't quite started Season 2 yet, uh, but we've got some special content for you. I'm one of your regular hosts, Scott Weatherly, and as usual, I'm joined by Julian. Julian, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Scott? I'm, I'm great, mate. I'm doing I'm doing really well. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm especially enjoying this, because this is an easy one for us, because we're, we're going to hand back to ourselves at a previous time and space, and... Uh, us talking about a, a, a former film uh, that we that we did before. So, are we time traveling, Scott? I, I think in some way this is going to be some form of time travel. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm taking it as time travel. Um, but this is an episode that you and I did for um, the the sort of sister podcast, uh, the, the one the one I do, Twentieth Century Geek. This was episode fifty three, so this is quite far back, and we talked about Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes from nineteen sixty eight. Um, yeah, and if I recall, we kind of went off on um, you know the the whole original Planet of the Apes trilogy or uh, five film quadrilogy. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, these are movies that we talked about together, and they sort of have become touchstones for the two of us because we know what each other think about them, and so it wouldn't be fair to let people you know not have a refresher course there. That's true, and I think the other thing as well is you know as as we go through these other films in in you know from season one into two and three onwards, um, we're going to try and not repeat ourselves and stuff. So, you know, if we never got to Planet of the Apes, I think that'd be a real shame. So it's it's good, and I appreciate getting this out to the listeners now to see uh, our thoughts on Planet of the Apes. So, without further ado, uh, I shall hand us over to us uh, <laughs> in a former life. I don't know about your experience. So, what, what, where did you come across Planet of the Apes first? What's your first exposure to um, the Planet of the Apes series? Well, I think I was a kid and I saw um, probably the original uh, on television, mm. and you know, it just kind of blew my mind. Um, I think it does feel very much like a Twilight Zone, especially given Serling's involvement, and. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that was my first exposure to it was kind of late night TV, not knowing what this was. So yeah, so that's so you sort of just came across it. So what are your thoughts, just high level then, when your thoughts as a kid then of, of the film and what it is really? Well, I think as a kid, you know, um, what blew me away was just it's cool seeing apes, right? Yeah, uh, it, it's cool seeing apes uh, having a civilization. The the uh, twist at the end is cool. Uh, the sort of like play on religion was really cool to me. The idea that I was always really into the idea that um, whether it was apes or transformers or whatever it was that, you know, these other societies could have their own religion. There was a Mm. culture there. It wasn't just like, 
you know, isn't this cool ape type of civilization? It was, well, here are these cultural traits of the civilization and a hierarchy to their class system and um, having their own religion and that that's based on events that happen kind of dimly. You know, all of that was really cool to me at the time. Yeah, I mean, because this is like one of those films where you say it has got a double purpose, not a double purpose, it's got, it's got a dual way of looking at it. Like, you can literally sit, sit back and enjoy this as a sort of um, a sci-fi adventure film. Quite easy, you know, just enjoy the sort of the action and the, sort of the adventure of it. But th- there is a real flip side to this. And it, I mean, watching it recently, coming back to this in the last couple of years, it wasn't. It was only then that I realised that this has actually got some quite strong messages, like throughout. You know, like, like like you said that the whole theme of like religion versus science that crops up. But you know, predominantly, really strongly in in many cases, is you know it really intrigues me of this idea, of that idea, and then obviously this sort of the, the, being apes, this whole thing of the self destruction of man, like you know the fact that we are basically the sort of we're the we're going to be the cause of our own self destruction, you know, of our own destruction. I find really sort of it's it's it becomes hammered home at the end. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to worry about spoilers for this because the film's very getting, getting on a bit. <laughs> But also the packaging I have for the DVD has the spoil has the ending on the front cover, so I, I think it's almost a given right. now that everyone knows <laughs> knows the ending. And um, if you've ever seen Simpsons or Futurama or, or anything like that, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you've seen a million parodies of that ending. This is it, yeah. It's, it's yeah. It's it's, no, it's the twist ending that like everybody knows. Even if you haven't seen <laughs> the film, you've seen the ending to this film. But the one I, I sort of the the one sort of theme that actually came through a little bit more watching it this time I hadn't really noticed. And I think maybe because I was thinking about the time frame that it was it was made in, there does seem to be echoes or sort of um, notches about the civil rights. Yeah. You know, both sort of like class and um, like yeah, social inequality and um, it, yeah, it really sort of stood out to me more this time than it has in the past. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that really comes, that really becomes kind of context for the, the third and the fourth when they, they travel back in time and they're in the present day and what was then the near future, and that becomes kind of explicit. But I like that that can be read on, on different levels, that there's there's the level of like seeing this as a metaphor for uh, race and for social issues like that, then there's like animal rights. Mm. Um, then there's a kind of level of like, to what extent do we identify with uh, people based on speech and intelligence? Uh, you know, and I think that this is an issue, especially with like issues like autism, where somebody can be nonverbal or be verbally challenged, but their brain is actually fine, but the, but they're seen as somehow deficient or lesser or people will talk about them as if they're not even there even though they are completely observing and hearing everything that's being said they just have trouble expressing it it's amazing to me the extent to which speech is such a defining characteristic of our evaluation of not just intelligence but also humanity yeah i mean that that's something that's really odd in this film that again sort of like came through more this time is 
Um, yeah, they, they define speech, and you know, we'll get past the fact that these sort of that they all speak English and can read English is a. We'll, we'll, we'll ignore that factor for now, but yeah, the fact that, like you say, that he can't. They're, they're looking for them to talk, so that the fact that like being able able to produce speech is so important. But they seem more impressed by speech than they do the written communication, which I think is, is probably you know the, the ability to form a written language is actually probably more. A show of evolution than um, than speech. True. But the one thing that really surprised I mean, sorry, there's one thing that really surprised me in this film is uh, when we'll jump around a bit the film, but when Taylor actually tries to write something in the dirt, the mute the mute humans like try to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. There's an acknowledgement that actually are they are they mute. And hiding communication by choice, or is it just almost like a fear reaction? Is it, you know a Pavlovian response? If you do something, you're going to get a beating or something. But there's something more to this film because she keeps um, Nova keeps trying to make Taylor uh, Charlton Heston's character be quiet, and they keep eradicating the written language. It's there's something there that I don't quite whether they missed it. In the, there was you know it's not followed up in the film, but there's something more about those the the human characters in this. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it makes me think of a couple things. You know, one is um, sort of in-universe kind of wondering to what extent are the humans dumb? Mm. Um, I actually hadn't seen, uh, until I was preparing for this podcast, the most recent film, War uh, for the Mm. Planet of the Apes. And in there, there's some dialogue, at least, about how this virus makes the humans dumb along with mute and that seems to be the case to some degree but i also wondered like thinking of the the social aspect um you know reminded me of there's a scene in like um 12 years a slave that's like this too where there's this aspect to the original apes film of hiding intelligence so that you don't stick out so that you know the bosses don't punish you and think you're dangerous. Yes, uh, and I always took it like that. Yeah, don't put your head above the parapet because you're going to get it sort of like chopped off, sort of thing. Don't stand up, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can yeah. see that. Yeah, it's yeah, like... they don't, they don't want us too smart. But yeah, so almost like there's an acknowledgement that they know that being too smart is actually a, is a danger to them. So it's almost like a defense mechanism of like, no, 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 we're quite happy being limited. I think limit limit seems to be a big theme in the film as well. Like, you know, the, if we're saying that the, the human characters are happy to limit their ability to communicate and talk, like the apes are also limiting themselves because they, they don't want to evolve any further. They seem like they've reached a plateau of like, yeah, we're going to sort of figure out this and that, but we're denying flight, we're denying evolution, we're denying this, we're denying that. That restriction on information and communication is, a, is a, it sort of like hangs quite heavy over the film and the rest of the series in, in some respects. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I haven't thought about that the the theme of limit itself, but I mean, I think of you know that kind of going back to Frankenstein. I mean, that sort of struggle between science and humanity. Mm. I mean, and in you know, obviously, the original Apes was produced in the context of the Cold War and mm. the idea that nuclear destruction was was probably going to happen. And that's certainly there in so much of the fiction of the time. And that's there at the ending. I, I think it's one of the the aspects that 
resonates with me, but but certain maybe seems a little dated. But um, but I I always connected that kind of like idea of limits of you know the struggle between evolution versus these forces keeping us back uh, as as tied somehow to that theme of you know sort of science destroying us or you mm. know science can free us history can free us but it can also destroy us yeah i think that and that sort of um i think you're right i mean yeah it's, it's the, the fear of science in this um is 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 prevalent you know it's almost like they do they don't want science to get too far to find anything new whether it be archaeology psychology or anything else and that obviously comes up later in the second film, uh, you know, beneath the Planet of the Apes, because then they find the whole mutant race of people, they worship a nuclear weapon, and the real sort of, like, you know, science is evil kind of thing really crops up then. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have such, you know, I, I know that the second one is uh, looked down upon, but uh, it doesn't have that thematic resonance that we're talking about with the first one, where you can analyze it in, in so many different ways. But, you know, I, I just find the second one just kind of a, a, a fun B-movie romp in a way uh, that I really enjoy, even though, you know, it's it sort of reviled for some of those same reasons. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I totally agree. I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as strong, you know, it's not as strong in the, the classic sense, but it's a lot of fun and it's very silly. Um, and oh, I, yeah. I, I love the, I'm not, you know, I'll say, I'm not going to worry about spoilers because, it's it's an odd situation where this is a series that keeps trying to stop itself, but still keeps yeah. going on. <laughs> um, oh yeah, you know the first one you think okay, well there can't really be a sequel to the second one. Oh, they've done done beneath the planet of the apes, and beneath the planet of the apes literally ends with a well they they can't have done a sequel to that. But it destroys <laughs> it destroys the world, and then there's the, the, there's yeah. um I forget the order one now, but there's yeah I mean, it's uh. Yeah, escape from the planet of the apes, and then so they go back in time, and um, so you go, oh, okay, they've done, they've, they've done that, and then that ends, um, you know, with with the death of certain characters, and you think, oh, that's going to nail that one, and then they do another one. So it's it's, it's like they, whoever was writing these kept keeps trying to kill off the series, but the success of the series keeps demanding that they keep going. Yes. Um, yeah, and I, I, I dig that. I mean, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, there are, there are some things that are written as epics, right? And, you know, I mean, obviously we're so familiar with that now, with whether it's like the Lord of the Rings, or, you yeah. know, or uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where, you know, everything is connected, everything is like part 20 of 40, or, or whatever it ends up being. And... We're so used to that now, but I mean, it does feel like they're just writing the next movie and they write themselves into corners yeah. and just figure it out. And that's almost funner in a way. And I feel like it, it in some ways it, it works for me as a kind of overall epic as a whole. I mean, I think that's what, what um, stands out for me perhaps most uh, about the overall series is that while the the last entry is is the weakest, mm. that it it nonetheless does seem to come round, and you know it does have that kind of question of like, are we watching the same timeline, or has time been altered? But I do like uh, I, I do like this kind of like 
we, we've taken it to the ultimate conclusion. We've, we've created a kind of like sealed loop, a kind of sealed circle. Uh, so I like the idea that the timeline hasn't been altered. Oh, yeah. That no. kind of like epic feel, which is ironic because it wasn't written to be an epic. No, and that's I, I do. I totally agree that these five films, when held to, when when watched together, they do. They become a bootstrap paradox. Like you know, yeah. Um, and I, cause I like the fact that in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, when um, Cornelius and uh, excuse me, when Cornelius and Zira go back in time, there's an acknowledgement that the space shuttle that Taylor, uh, the Charlton Heston character, is on has just taken off. So the reason he doesn't know about them and has never seen walking, talking apes is because he's already in space. So there is this bootstrap paradox of like, well, if he hadn't, have, you know, if everything that hadn't happened in the first film, you know, hasn't happened and you get the destruction of the world, which then results in them being sent back in time. and So you, you are literally trapped in the loop that, right. but like, like you say, it just sort of happened. And it's almost like they've built this five film epic uh, that tells the story of the sort of the, the self-destruction of man and the you know the birth of the planet of the apes, but by accident and with ever decreasing budgets. Yes, that is actually really impressive. Like I say, when you look at it. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, there's a lot of discussion of uh, that ending to the the fifth film with uh, the stat dying, which which is a silly thing. Again, sort of spoilers, right? Mm. Um, but. Uh, you know, a sort of like this scene that, you know, and you have humans in that scene and it seems as if they're getting along. Uh, does this mean that we've changed the original timeline or is this conflict going to continue and we're going to get a kind of rise of, of religious orthodoxy among the apes and um, we're right back on the original timeline? And, and there's a kind of ambiguity there that, I think the ambiguity is pleasing, but I, again, I prefer the, the sort of closed loop thing. I mean, it doesn't make sense really otherwise that you can go back in time and yeah. change time anyway. And then how did you go back in time in the first place? I mean, I, de- um, I definitely think there's more to it though. Cause I mean, they acknowledge at the, uh, in the planet of the apes, um, when they crash land back on what they find out to be earth, they say they've been gone Technically, like just over two thousand years. Mm-hmm. So, as you go through the five films, in the last film, it's still Caesar, isn't it? In the fifth film. Yeah, yeah. So there's an acknowledgement, right. really, from what I would say, because that. And the other thing they say is that the, the scrolls, the sacred scrolls, uh, were only written twelve hundred years ago. So there's a seven hundred year period that they don't really know about. So even if, you know, whatever happens, it's that timeline. There is a. There's a there's almost like a 1500, well, there's probably more, there's a 2000 year period that we don't know about. Um, right. That was, you know, that gets them back to that cultural start point um, of the first film. So yes, yeah, so it's, it's possible that there was, you know, they established a, a harmonious relationship with um, humans. And then there was a, another shift, for, you know, to create the, the, the religious zealot society that comes along later. So, yeah, I do, I do think so of the got, same timeline. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You've got me like really feeling like this is more nihilistic than, than it feels like reading the, watching the films because, <laughs> I mean, if, if, 
if that's true, I mean, the message is sort of, okay, humans destroy themselves. Humans are terrible. They abuse the apes. Uh, they kind of deserve to be wiped out. And But humans destroy themselves. And also the apes wind up destroying themselves. You yeah. know? Intelligence is just a curse. I, I, I so that's sort of what I take from this is the more the, and I said that thing about the limits on this in the first film when they talk about the limitations is um, you know don't go too far because you'll end up destroying yourself um, at the end of the first film uh, when they t- when they, they they destroy the um, archaeological dig um, and young Julia uh, Lu- Lucy yeah Lucius the young ape says you know what what about truth what about you know this is just, you can't be doing this. What about mm-hmm. the future? And Zaius actually says to him, I think I've just saved it. So they're saying, like, you know, no, no, d- denial of all this stuff, n- you know, lack of knowledge, or, or you know, um, limiting our knowledge of all these things could actually save us. And there's actually sort of, that sort of ends up being the case. Yeah, you know, that's kind of scary because it, it's hard not to, not to hate him mm. in that first movie. I mean, uh, you know, he is such a bad guy and... You know, it's hard not to feel rage at this kind of destruction of the truth, destruction of the historical record. Oh, yeah. No, I totally mean that, yeah, the the, the denial of, you know, evolution and that man came first and this thing. Um, But then there's that thing of, you know, again, just watching it recently that I was thinking, if you if you were to look at it in that smaller context of protecting the, your society and the people that live within it, then he's not doing it to... He's not doing it to be bad. He's doing it because he feels the right thing to do is to limit that knowledge. You know, people, people don't... wouldn't react well to knowing this sort of thing. He thinks he's doing the right thing, which sort of makes him... I'm not saying a better person or a better ape, <laughs> but I, again, it's one of those. He's a villain where you sort of go, I, I can sort of see where you're coming from, you know. Oh yeah, he admits. Oh, he... I, I agree. I mean, and, and 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 I think that's what makes him. That's what makes him a great villain. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, I mean, there, that also reminds me of the the idea that uh, that the sacred scrolls, the whole ape religiosity. It makes sense in a primitive culture. I mean, there's a kind of place for it in human evolution too, right? Mm. That, you know, when we knew nothing about anything, you know, and a thunderstorm was scary and a flood could feel like the end of the world, being able to pray at an altar, um, you know, was comforting. Uh, being able to pray that the crops would come in and have some explanation for why they didn't when that could mean really the apocalypse for you and your tribe. I mean, that the idea of just not living in a random, unpredictable, chaotic universe, in that sort of dark environment, uh, religion could be a light or at least a comfort. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I mean... You know, in the in the original novel, you know, the, the apes are more technological than they are in the movie. Mm. And I think that's one thing that the more primitive ape culture, although obviously you have a movement towards science, you have time for a shift. And I guess that's the way I perceive it, that ape civilization has progressed to the point where maybe they're capable 
of handling science. Mm. Um, but they're still persisting in this religious thinking, and it's this kind of like crux point in history. You know, it's sort of you know the Galileo point where there there could be an ape enlightenment, but it's not really going to happen. Yeah, and I, I do think that's really interesting that you say that, that there's an enlightenment because it does feel like that they're on the verge of something because they are talking about sort of like neuroscience, they're talking about psychology, um, and then when you get the young ape Lucius, he's the one that's talking about the future and development. You think, oh, there, there is almost that. There's a push. There's something coming. It's coming from the chimpanzees that they want to push. You know, it's that sort of thing from the and you have that class system, but then like it's the fact that. Um, and I know this, the, the orangutans that form sort of the council sort of thing, the Dr. Zaius, at the very end yeah. when he produces that uh, the part of the scroll that's been hidden, and he says, I'll oh, read this specific bit, and it says about man being, you know, he'll kill his brother to take his brother's land, and he'll do this, and how brutal we are, and we are the, you know, the creators of our own destruction. And instead of sort of trying to defend, defend us, Taylor, Charlton Heston, just goes, well, yeah, it's a, fair, it's a fair cop, to be perfectly honest. Um, and you so, so you do sort of think he's. It's that thing again that you know it's um, Da Vinci Code level things of like what is what is the Vatican hiding from us? To, you know about things. Religion was an element of control. You know it's, it's acknowledged that you know, during medieval uh, the medieval period, religion acted as a control on the peasants and the you know society. And that's sort of what they're doing, but he's, he, he's, Zeus and that council strongly feels that they are doing it for the best reason. They're not doing it for wealth, they're not doing it for, I don't know about power, but it, it does feel like they feel that they're doing it for the right reason. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, there's also this way in which, you know, in the in the passage you quoted, that that we sort of define civilization by some sort of other. Mm. And, you know, you think of like how often people say that somebody is like an animal, you know, I mean, that's such a base thing, right? I mean, somebody is not honoring their word. Somebody is not uh, acting honorably. Somebody is giving into their animal instincts, right? Mm. Um, We even today define ourselves as human beings as sort of these kind of rational, civilized, controlled things that we're really not, but we need this kind of other to imagine that we can be better, right? I mean, instead of just saying, be rational, we say, don't be like those animals who are irrational. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's not a bad thing, like you said. I mean, it might not be good if you're a human yeah. and you're being defined as the other, but you see the function that it serves within ape society. Yeah, and the, the other thing to remember about this as well, really, is that it's not a global society. This is right. a, this is a small thing because they you know they acknowledge that there's the um, the forbidden zone, and they do ask like, well, you know, is there another is there another forest beyond the forbidden zone? What else is out there? What 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 have you seen? What do you know? So this this is a, not only is it sort of like you. Know, a society that's controlled by religion and its class system is controlled by fear of the unknown, of the fact that they do not know what is beyond their own boundaries or their own borders. Yeah, I like the idea that, you know, in, in the original Planet of the Apes, there's like a an ape utopia 
uh, somewhere else uh, yeah. where they're just living it up and eventually they're just destroyed by the, the Alpha Omega bomb, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's an ape Wakanda somewhere, like just fl- <laughs> yeah. flying exactly. cars and uh, yeah, teleportation <laughs> and they do not see this coming, that this primitive society is about to wipe them out by accident. Yeah, precisely, and, and, and that's perfectly possible. Mm. Um if there is a 2,000-year period of, of, of unknown story, then, yeah, there could be more going on across the planet that we just don't know about, which has never really been explored. That'd be quite interesting, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they have... I mean, it's not consistent, but, I mean, the... the uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the animated series where the <laughs> apes are a little more technological. Mm. Not not much of it. I couldn't, I couldn't watch much of it, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, but that's one of the things with this series. It, it, it did develop into a bit of a, a commercial franchise for a time. That I think you know. It, well, they had they had a live action series too. Oh yes, I, I've, I've never watched any of that. Is that any good? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I haven't watched all of it. But uh, no, it's uh, from what I remember, it's not very good. It's, I think it's one of those things that, like you say, the story, the, the concept is strong and they seem to rely on that. And as the budgets get, um, as the budgets get lesser, the makeup gets weaker. And I feel yeah. that, like you say, you could, you could stretch this to breaking point with, at least with this form of the concept. You know, the concept. Now, do you prefer the, the, I mean, how do you feel about the costumes? Because, I mean, I like, I kind of like the costumes and, you know, like rewatching the CGI movies. You know, I kind of miss the costumes sometimes. I agree. No, I agree. I think um, I really quite enjoy that. I mean, this is 1968, so this is you know, this isn't high. Even from a practical effects point of view, we're not talking high end. This is you know, there are times when you can see that you know the double mouths, or you can see slightly through the masks, but. It looks good. I, you know, it's one of those things where you, it, it passes the uncanny valley to the expect the acceptance of yeah, I'm going to accept these are talking walking apes. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a, yeah. I don't know if I'm just an old fogey now, or you know, uh, like I mean, you're right. I mean, you you look at the original movies and especially later on. I mean. You definitely feel like I'm looking at a human in a suit sometimes. But yeah. Uh, you just accept it. And then with the CGI, I think, you know, I mean, you get into that uncanny valley area where you think, this is near perfect, but that fur isn't flowing the way I want it to be. Mm. Or, you know, um, their interaction with water or grain or something is just, you know, Slightly a little off. too fluid. Yeah. yeah. I know exactly what you mean, and I think the two, the thing I like about this, the concept or the thing of the Planet of the Apes is, and I'm trying to think of anything, any other series that's that's, that's had it a similar evolution. Each time they've tried to go at it, it has been, they've do, they've done it in a different way. Like they haven't tried to just continue or just to go, oh yeah, here's what was we did before and we're gonna do it again. Even if you look at sort of the the Tim Burton one. Um, from I think 2000, 99, 2000, like the practical makeup effects in that are astounding. Oh yeah, you know that's the best part of the film, to be honest. But they look amazing, um, and I think the cast who 
had to put up with that. You know, Helen Bonham Carter, Tim Roth, and all the rest of them. Amazing to go through that. Um, and but again, like they say, the tone is different. The, you know, they've tried to take a different uh, take a different angle. Um, didn't quite work. But I, I always think back when I watch that film, like fair play for trying to do something different. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, and I think that movie is. I mean, I, I won't say it's a good movie, but but I you know, um, but I think that it's it's fun. I mean, it's it's fun, especially seeing that rendition of the the ape civilization and the sort mm. of tree houses and Charlton Heston's cameo and Alina Bottom Bottom Carter is great and uh, you know I mean there's a lot that's fun to that movie mm-hmm. even though it is kind of an abortion of a movie yeah it has its issues it really does but I think some of it really it, some of it holds up the makeup effects really held up I think some of the cast have done like I say have done a great job with what they've given you know, Mark Wahlberg was just on the, on the rise then, so it's just unfortunate. But it, it's um, the, but the the thing is, the the twist ending of that one, yeah, is is closer. I haven't actually read the book, and that's a you know on me really. But the the twist ending of the Tim Burton film, the 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 reveal, is closer to the book than the 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 uh, Charlton Heston one, as far as mm-hmm. I'm aware. Um. So they, you know, they 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 try to pull it back again, bring it back to the sort of source material and stuff, and take a different swing at it. Which you got, again, I've got to give them, you know, their due for. But I think they got them again. Like we've said about the whole, all the themes you can pull from the original and this sort of like accidental epic uh, paradox, you know, that they've created with the original series. Like none of that seems to hang on th- off the re- the Tim Burton one. It's it's just played to be right. a blockbuster. Right. And I, I kind of feel like, I mean, I remember that ending being so maligned at the time. And people were so angry. I mean, they left the theater confused. They, you know, I mean, people said this, you know, and it, and it is, I mean, unlike the first movie where the reveal kind of shows you what's been going on all along. I mean, the reveal is a setup for the sequel, right? Yeah. But I think, like, that is... Every movie I've seen that's made over a hundred million dollars in the last twelve years, they're all setting up the sequel. They all really, you know, it's very common that they don't even make sense without thinking of the sequel. I mean, uh, and maybe that movie would have done better a few years later when audiences were more used to that idea of, oh, well, this doesn't make sense, but. It'll make sense in the sequel. I mean, this is setting up a dramatic conflict. Yeah. Um, but really, that was so maligned. That's a really good point. I've never thought of that. That if that had been released, I mean, yeah. So that was released in two thousand. But if that had been released in two thousand fourteen, post, you know, post Avengers, say. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. People would probably have accepted that a lot more. You know that. Oh, okay. They're going to do an apes uh, universe. And we're going to get these other things. Yeah, I think you might be right. right. Well, these days they'd be wondering, you know, what the companion films are, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what what the, the larger apes universe is going to consist of. That's it. When will um, I get the Nova origin story? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, the, the, the gritty, you know, uh, Nova reboot. That's right, yeah. It's a silent film. No one talks in it. So it's to be really awkward. Um, yeah, directed by Scorsese or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
but that, that's the thing. I mean, you know, they they do, um, and that's what. Well, that's also, that's why I think the 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 latest iteration of it, you know, the 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 Andy Circus, the CGI version, um, seems to have, have worked better, in the sense of it, it it does seem to be telling a wider story, um, and I also think I think they've made it relevant to modern audiences and and modern fears. You know, so the whole thing of uh, pandemics and again science that you know is that fear of science, uh, science producing something that's going to kill us all off, or you know, those modern fears are are real at the moment. Right, and like genetic manipulation, and uh, mm. and, and and also I think the more we learn about animals, uh, I mean, in the sixties, this was all much more hypothetical but the more we learn about animals the more we see less of a separation between us and them i mean it was quite common at one point for people to say uh animals don't experience emotion and now i mean obviously if you've ever had a pet you've seen the pet experiences emotion Mm. but we now know there's there's virtually nothing as a unique trait that separates us from that makes us unique in among animals yeah that's it so it's those those elements and that's what i think the the newer series has has landed better because it seemed to have a a relevant um satirical message that people could sort of latch on to yeah i don't i don't know i mean i i find like i miss i miss in the reboot series or you know the the corn the um uh caesar trilogy now Mm. sort of some of those social issues of the first one that we were talking about just kind of how deep that first one is with sort mm. of the, the role of science is both positive and negative and the role of religion and social issues. I, I feel like that resonance, I, I want it to be deeper than it is. And, and the thing that irritates me about the, the new ones, and I, and, I, and I think I like war the best, but the thing that irritates me is is maybe that that lack of resonance compared to uh, the original one. Although they're good movies, but man, when I you know they have that problem of uh, blockbusters, less a war, but you know the others have that problem of the current crop of blockbusters where you get to the climax and you just think, all right, you know, I know it's got to be fiery and lots of people got to die, you know, or lots of apes got to die, but. I, I, I kind of reach a point where I want the climax to be over already. Yes. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean. It's. Um, I think I, I, I totally agree. And I, I really enjoy, um, I think, you know, like that, the Caesar trilogy. Um, yeah. I think that they, you know, they stand together as a, as a well-made um, trilogy of films. But they are blockbusters. You know, they are, they're entertainment. Uh, and beyond that, they try for things um, smaller themes like family and, and loyalty and you know it's things like that that you can probably just you know you can pick out uh, there's some generational stuff in there but overall I, I'd, I'd agree I think it's it's small fry you know it's almost like a token theme like yeah we can do we can add family into this or we can add in you know communication across species or something it, it's never it doesn't feel like it's got the weight or the satire that that, that the, the the first one has really yeah i feel that 
too. I mean, I, I feel like one of the themes that comes through for me um, is not giving into to hatred and, and xenophobia and warmongering. Mm. And maybe that's because of the times we live in or thinking back to the buildup to the Iraq war or people talking about Iran right now. Mm. I mean, yeah, there is a kind of like, you know, larger theme of not giving in to, you know, to hatred. I mean, there, there's a kind of theme of not to, I'm kind of arguing against myself now because, you know, I had previously <laughs> said that, I, I mean, I agree with you that it's not as thematically deep as the original, but but there is that kind of like Oristaya, like, how do you give up on revenge? Somebody's mm. got to stop. Somebody's got to say... An eye for an eye know, is I always going to go on sort of thing. Right, exactly. And, and, and at some point doing that, whether you're talking about any conflict or, or almost any conflict, I mean, it involves parents giving up on revenge for the deaths of their children. Mm. Um, and how do you tell a parent? I mean, you think of uh, Israel and Palestine. I mean, mm. how do you tell somebody... Yeah, you know, your kid died, but we're going to move past that. Yeah. And that's that we have to do that, right? Or else we just continue this cycle of revenge and violence, but that's an impossible moral thing to do. And I think those films do dramatize that that sense. No, I know what you're saying. I can see exactly what you're saying now. I, I, I agree um, that that's there. Maybe I'm just thinking it's not handled as well or presented yeah. in, a, in a way that I think is actually satisfying to as, a, as a, either a satire or as a comment on, on that conflict. I agree. I uh, mean, and, and too often, especially, especially in the second one, uh, I think it's Dawn, that, um, you know, it, it's just kind of like good ape, uh, Caesar versus Batty, you know? Yeah. Um, and e- even in war, it's just kind of, you know, this is the bad human. And there are good humans too. Um, these are so the watered... I mean, I, I say, these are, the thing is, like you say, these are the watered-down versions now. Like You have to have the clearly good hero. You have to have the clearly bad villain. Um, you know, you, you have to have those characters. And then you've you've got the sort of um, you know the second one in Dawn. You you have sort of um, you they try and introduce the conflicted characters in the middle. I think you got James Franco in the first one, and you get Jason Clark in the second. Um, right. And you, you get this. I don't really think there is a character like that in the, in the in the third one in War. But they try and introduce that element of saying, you know, oh, that there is a conflicted character, or there is someone trying to balance both sides. But they've, like you say, they have to have the heavy villain and the heavy hero to, just for the for the audience and the, in in this sort of block blockbuster watered down um, era. I I think that's why I like I I think that's why I like War the Best is mm. because uh, I mean you know besides I, I I dig Woody Harrelson I mean yeah. he's set up to be the big bad mm. and again spoilers I mean he's not eliminated through the actions of Caesar. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's eliminated through happenstance and the fact that you don't get, 
I mean, you know, the movie still tries to have, have its cake and eat it too and, and, you know, have a big military conflict right after that. But the fact that the big bad isn't a 20-minute fight scene with fire and everything pleases me. Mm. And it, it kind of deconstructs a little bit, at least, that kind of blockbuster formula. And then, you know, I think that if anyone is conflicted in that movie, it's Caesar himself. Which, um, which is a really good point, actually. I thought, but yeah, I know what you're saying. I think and, and, and I dig that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like the idea of, of sort of um, living... I mean, it's almost like Kirk in uh, Star Trek VI, right? You know, mm. like the, the end of the original movies, and Kirk is kind of a dinosaur who can't give up on his hatred for the Klingons, you mm. know, because uh, they killed his son. Um, there is that kind of, like... I've lived long enough that I have internalized some of this conflict. I've internalized some of the hatred and a new generation has to come along and start fresh and be able to let go of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be interested to see, you know, they've made, at the end of the day, these are all, these are all designed to make money and, and, and war did make sufficient money, you know, money to make it for them to continue with with a sequel. And I would be interested to see where they go with this post Caesar uh, story. You know, like I say, what is the what is the continuation of this? When it's just dawned on me, really, um, you know, when you see the covers of those three those three films, like Caesar is the star. You know, he he is the character on those three the, the those three covers. This film hangs on that you want to go and see the, his the progression of his story, a completely CGI character, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that sort of Andy Sir, Andy Serkis should really be called out for how well he portrays and the, the, his excellent work on doing all this and stuff, um, but that in itself actually oh. is is quite commendable. That actually we we're discussing a trilogy of films that surround are surround sorry are all about the story of an ape. Yeah, I agree, and and I I agree that that's a wonderful performance. And you know, while I have my quibbles about those movies, I mean, I do admire them for telling a coherent story far more than if you pick out one another so-called trilogy. You know, whether it's Dark Knight, whether mm. it's I mean, which admittedly has great highs, or you know, Star Wars, or or whatever. I mean. these most recent three films do hang together to tell a kind of coherent story in three parts that, that work as a whole really well to me. Yes. Much like the, I mean, the original five work really well to me as a coherent whole. And I'm interested, I am also interested and I was looking it up and I I guess there's rumors that they're going to do another one, but there's nothing really announced yet. But, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting whether they go, like, jumping ahead 10 years and kind of seeing Cornelius sort of growing up and Mm. not having known his father and having this, whether there's a Cornelius trilogy that follows this, or they have the ship departing in the first one, you can jump ahead to the original and kind of uh, be coherent with the first three movies, uh, you know, or do both as part of the Planet of the Apes universe, you know, who knows? No, I agree. The, the The potential is 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 there. I, I think there's so much they could do. Because um, the one thing is, the, the, the other thing about these films, ignoring the, the Tim Burton one, but they um, 
in this film, you know, in in the in the the modern trilogy, the Caesar trilogy, and in the original five, the thing I also think that's quite commendable is they never they don't ever seem to be scared of the human characters being assholes, for want of a better phrase. There's no one that has they don't have to have almost like the heroic, um, you know, whiter than white um, hero or 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 you know. Um, entry character because the thing I was quite surprised about watching this again going back to this one is the, the Charlton Heston character in this in the in the original uh, Taylor mm-hmm. is, is a bit of a dick yeah to be perfectly yeah. honest um, you know he he's sat in the cabin of his spaceship smoking a cigar that could be a sort of like from, <laughs> from the time of the space I don't know but then the, the thing that really struck me is when they... Um, first, first they kill off the female character with little to no introduction, which is really a thing of its time. Um, yes. But then when they acknowledge her death and they, the, one, the one guy is building a small memorial and he's putting like an American flag, his reaction of just laughing at him of how ridiculous that is 2,000 years after we've left, you know, whatever... Is actually quite like almost hurtful. Is like, you know, do you know how ridiculous you are in the in the face of everything we're doing? Um, yes. And I, I was a bit surprised by that. And it, it, it's part of the film is him being humbled, um, and his arrogance sort of like being thrown in his face a little bit. But he never really he learns lessons, but he he stands by his own pessimism throughout the entire film. Yeah, I, I like that observation a lot. Um... I hadn't thought about that, you know, the sort of, like, arc of him as a character towards humility. Um, you know, I guess I'm so... The, the thing is, Charlton Heston just has that Charlton Heston swagger, no matter what he's doing, that, you know, even at the end, I mean, once he has the upper hand, he he is quite dickish. Uh, you know, he has that sort of, like, I'm in charge here, sort of uh, John Wayne swagger about yeah. him. You know, in a way that is kind of uh, repulsive. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the moment the moment he gets a gun, um, it th- you know, <laughs> he gets all his confidence back, and you know, it's it's not surprising. You know, card carrying NRA member, I'm not surprised. But it, 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 there was a moment in the film where, like, he's gone through this. He's been stripped naked. He's been hosed down. He's been humiliated, and you sort of think he's accepting the, 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 these primates, these apes, as, as equals. Like He's communicating with them. He's awesome. And then he gets given a gun, and then say he steps up and he's like, no, I'm in charge, and I'm going to prove to you that man came first and we were better. And it's just sort of yeah, almost I like a step feel, backwards. Yeah, I do feel like at the end of that, I mean, if there, if there is humility, it, it, it's in that you know sort of final reveal. But I, I, I do feel like even at the end... Uh, where, you know, clearly he uh, has uh, ape allies. He doesn't seem to, even then, he speaks to them. It's sort of like, where are you going? Uh, I'm heading out into the Forbidden Zone to, to, to find the truth. Yeah. He, he still doesn't seem, to my taste anyway, to really be accepting them as equals. He still has a kind of, uh, and, and maybe that's just because of that swagger, uh, Maybe he feels like, you know, I mean, then again, he doesn't seem to accept uh, Nova as an equal either. No, um, no. <laughs> you know, it is the 60s, right? Yeah. It oh, is Mad Men. That, that's it. that was exactly what I took from this, was she's she would be, in the 60s terms, like the perfect woman. 
She she's very very attractive and doesn't say a word. And I was just like, oh god. No, but they don't, that it felt like I was like this is. Re-, I felt a little bit uncomfortable about some of this where she she tries to communicate with him through different ways, and every time she does, like he completely shuns her. It's only when he's sort of like telling her what to do that he seems completely comfortable in his position. I don't know. I might be yeah. over 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 reading that, but um... no, I, th- I think you're right. Uh, and he doesn't ever consult her on any decision. Yeah. I mean, he's clearly in charge, and her job is to get on the back of the horse. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's not good. Well, it's interesting because it, the the thing at one, I actually. You know, I said I haven't watched it for a while. Then when I watched it, there's a bit where they do go out and they're about to go back to the archaeological dig, and he acknowledges, um, "This is her. This is her land. This is where she comes from." And I actually thought that, oh, he's going to sort of try and communicate with her to get information about the best way of doing something. And no, nope, doesn't happen. He, he literally then just what he just says to him, "No, this is her land, and that's why she knows something." And then he walks off, and I was like, "Oh, all right, well." <laughs> Back, back to sort of... Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's definitely a product of its time in that sense. I, I mean, I'm also uncomfortable by, uh, I forget his name, the black astronaut yes. who is lobotomized. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like, oh, no, you know, <laughs> the one black character has been lobotomized. And and Taylor's upset, mm. but it's it's very much used in the script to be sort of, this is the threat to Taylor... Um, from the apes, if he stays in captivity, yeah, as opposed to like this is a terrible human tragedy in its own right. Oh yeah, that's all they're there for. I think the two other astronauts being one's killed and stuffed, and then one is mm-hmm. let's say lobotomized. They are there literally to show, uh, to provide suspense that this is what could happen to Charlton Heston. That's the uh, that is all they are there for. Um, and so yeah, I agree with that. They're sort of there as fodder, as you know, um. I was going to say something. The other thing I find bizarre about him as a character, I think maybe it's just he is Charlton Heston. I don't. I haven't watched a great deal of Charlton Heston films, but um, is is his swagger throughout all of this the conviction that he is right? Um, and you know, this, he, the, he says certain things like, you know, you're right. I don't know your culture, but still seems to be saying, but you're wrong. Um, and I don't know whether that's like an right. it's like an American, please, it's like an Americanism, of, you know, well I'm an you know it's uh, I'm an astronaut, and I'm I'm I, <laughs> I, I'm clearly the best the country you know we've got to offer the planet's got to offer so I should be right and you should be listening to me, and it, so he, he comes across as a very sort of sixties seventies character in that respect. Um, oh, was, but the point I was going to make was, and I was, I'm curious to this, this. I don't know what the point of their mission and I don't know what training any of them have had because they're clearly not scientists. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> because when, I never thought of that, but yes. Because when they walk through the desert and they finally find evidence of life, as in a plant, the, their response is to dig it up, thus killing it. <laughs> <laughs> um and then when they find water, their response is not to think, we'll leave somebody on guard to guard our uniforms. They all just strip down naked and jump in without testing the water or the fauna or around or the flora and fauna around them. They literally just jump into this water on an alien planet. Um, it's it's Prometheus level sort of like, you know, carefree attitude to the, uh, to the processes of science is what I would say. 
I, I think that's completely right. I mean, I always saw I always saw Heston in that movie as like, um, you know, sort of like all the obnoxious elements of Captain Kirk. You know, <laughs> that sort of like, yeah. yeah, I'm in charge here. I have that swagger. I'm going to yes, I respect this other civilization. But I'm really going to I'm going to talk about that. But I'm really going to do what I want. Yeah. And. <laughs> you know, sort out their problems, you know, very kind of colonial uh, sort of mentality. Yes. Um, and I identify that, like, you know, even in, um, uh, you know, a movie, you know, a little earlier, like, you know, Fantastic Planet or something, mm. where they should be awed by this superior technology and superior civilization. They are, but they're still talking about, like, God and, you know, how... You know, they still have a kind of like moral certainty in a way that, you know, Kirk had and that I feel that, you know, Heston has. There's a kind of, you know, um, you know, just seems very much of that era. Yes. Uh, I, and of I agree course, with the, that. the white American, you know, man. Yeah. The conviction that, uh, you know, regardless of what we come across, we are always going to be the superior species or the superior race. Um, yeah, and we'll and we'll be able to solve it all through, uh, you know, um, good old fashioned American know how and, mm. and confidence. You know, well, it'll suppose, all work out somehow. I suppose that there's the element of you know it, it doesn't quite work out in that respect, but it's that it's the great white savior, <laughs> or you know, like, you know, I know, I know that that's sort of luckily going away. I think that you know, but there's that idea, isn't there? They they have the sort of there's a there's a foreign. Um, you know, nation or a foreign village or a foreign community, and then the good-looking white actor comes along and, and through their intervention solves all their problems. I think Last Samurai with you know, Tom Cruise is a good example of that. Or um, what was it Great Wall with Matt Damon uh, last year? Um, you know that that, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, and, and and that's deservedly become very uncomfortable to mm-hmm. watch. Uh, you know, and, and there is definitely, an, especially in Heston, swagger at the end and sort of, you know, uh, you know, telling uh, the apes about, you know, uh, you know, the truth and the scrolls and, and sort of lecturing to them. And, you know, there is that kind of, uh, you know, only this outsider can, you know, who's the great white savior figure can mm. kind of fix your society. Yeah. Um, yeah in, a, in a way that you know, we're really kind of uh, tearing this movie apart. But it's true. It is, but it is, the thing is, it is very much of its time. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that it's, it's not a great film. I really enjoy watching it. And I, like I say, picking out the satire, this film has got a lot to say, but it, it, much like we've said with the others, it's got to make, it had to be an entertaining film within the context of entertaining people in 1968. Um, so you weren't going to get, you you know, having a having a, a black astronaut, you know, a coloured astronaut in this, that was probably like, oh, well done. That was a thumbs up <laughs> moment in 1968. I don't know. Right, like, tokenism was not a thing back then. You know? yeah, like, yeah. tokenism was still like, like thumbs up. Yeah. Uhura gets one line. That's cool. <laughs> At least you have a black officer on the bridge. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, I th- I don't know what the reaction would have been, but the fact that Charlton Heston, you know, 
kisses Zera at the end of this like is an ape. Yeah. Um, I was in my head. I was thinking, is that is that going to be some sort of sort of um, progression? You know, we know she's a white actress and did the white white makeup, but she's still being portrayed as an ape. Uh, I wondered how people would have reacted to that at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that in the context, that's progressive, right? I mean, mm. I, and I like what she says about, you're so damn ugly, yeah. you know? <laughs> this, I mean, that's a great line. And, yeah. and, and this idea of kind of, you know, for all of its kind of swagger and the things that we're criticizing, that there is a kind of cultural relativism there. Um, you know, the, this kind of like slight, ever so slight sort of deconstruction of, you know, that handsome white male savior figure, you know. <laughs> and and yeah, you can laugh at it and say, you know, she's an ape. She doesn't know how, how sexy Heston really is or something. But um, I, I, I do... Maybe it's a comedic line, but it does sort of hint at a kind of, you know, well, you know, even attractiveness is, is something that's is, going to vary planet to planet or culture to culture. Yeah, and I, I, it's interesting, but yeah, it, it, is, it has a relevance to it. Um, it's interesting because, you know, you, you t- we talk about one of the reasons I sort of, the, the, the theme I've done for this month has been, I've been jumping back. I started in 1980 and I've jumped back 10 years at a time to look at different films from this era. So I did like um, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988 and I did Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978 and then I'm I'm doing Planet of the Apes from 68. And one of the things that's really come out is how the films being created in those eras really does impact um, how those films are made and the messages that they portray. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen the '78 uh, invasion of the body snatchers, but it really, it really plays like, a, like the paranoia and mistrust that, that seeps in that film, and the pacing of it um, is incredibly sort of like '70s, and you know, mirrors many films of that era. Um, oh yeah, and you know, just the sort of um, again the pessimism of that ending of the, that film. And the fact that it's it's one small story in a greater in a greater sort of tale is is you know is very much of that era, and then Bugs Bunny, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and then the idea of like Bugs Bunny and and, and Mickey Mouse being out, and the commercialism of the eighties um, was is it's really interesting. So that this again is another product of the of the sixties. This is a film. Yeah, I think that, that's very true, and I, and I think that the the new films, you know, one of the things that occurred to me is that. You know, um, the difference between uh, making Taylor the hero versus making the ape the hero. Yeah. Um, You know, and it strikes me like, I mean, it's a difference between the original Westworld, which I love, and the HBO series, which I'm enjoying. Mm. Um, You know, the whole point of the new series is identify with the robots. You know, they're oppressed. They're the audience identification. Um, they're who you're supposed to root for. And whereas in the original uh, Apes, you're rooting for Taylor, right? I mean, you know, yeah, you know, you're rooting for the good Apes, the scientific Apes, but you're mostly rooting for Taylor. Um, he's who you're supposed to identify with. You know, that gets kind of deconstructed a little. But, you know, even in some of the later films, you know, you're rooting for Ricardo Montalban, you know? Yeah. Um, 
And by the time you get to the, the new films, I mean, they are as much a product of their era as, you know, the um, 68 movie is. And I'm sure that in, you know, uh, decades hence, we'll look back and think, oh, that's so dated, you know? Yeah. And this is one of those things that, like, you know, I know people, there's a whole thing about um, the thought of rebooting films and, you know, people sort of, uh, argue against it and that sort of thing, but uh, in, there's a part of me though, that really thinks it's it's important in a, to an expert aspect because it can give you a real gauge of how society has changed. Like you say that that shift of perspective from um, the, the human protagonist to the to the to the the ape, or like say from the from the human protagonist to the robot or something, is a real shift. Um, in storytelling and in sort of you know the the cultural norms that we're used to now in our entertainment, right? And I, and I think you know that same shift you see sort of like early sort of one reason why people love Blade Runner so much is you know the replicants are the ones you identify with, mm. um, you know, and I think that you know we um, you know there isn't in the original some of the stuff that's bothering us is the fact that you know oppressed or, or marginalized groups are not um, identified with. Mm. I mean, Taylor is, you know, the, the great white hope. I mean, he's the one you're supposed to love and his swagger is okay. And, you know, cause it's coming from a good place. And, and now, you know, we're at this kind of cultural point where, you know, it's not enough just to be, you know, um, well-intentioned, right? You know, I mean, you yeah. can be uh, well-intentioned on social issues and still uh, be a sexual harasser or, you know, uh, put your foot in your mouth in, in any number of ways, and it's okay to criticize that. Whereas in the 60s, you know, I mean, so there were people who, you know, could be um, in favor of the civil rights movement, but could still harbor a lot of sexism and racism, and mm. they, you know you couldn't afford to discount that person as an ally because, you know, there were very real stakes. Not yeah. that there aren't now, but the the climate has changed. Yeah, and I think, it's, I think you know, Hollywood, um, you know, it takes a while for films to get made and that sort of thing. And it, it's, you know, it... Um, so the, 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 the time they are reflecting is always a little bit later. So you do get... You know, if this was came out in '68, it was—it's more of a reflection of that mid '60s, mid to late '60s sort of attitude. And again, like for this period in time, you know, with everything that's going on with uh, like the Me Too movement and the you know these revelations and the progression of uh, identification of gender and race and all those things, that I do wonder in the next couple of years what what films and you know sci-fi is great for doing this. What films we will see that will be able to be a, a milestone or a touch point for the the cultural change that we're going through at the moment. Well, I think sci-fi is uniquely suited to that. I mean, mm. I, I think it's it's probably. I mean, I'm you know a huge sci-fi addict. I mean, it's probably like the one genre where I can watch a truly horrible movie and still be entertained. Yeah. Um, and and so. I mean, I think sci-fi is uniquely suited to tell these kinds of parables um, and to use these kinds of situations and themes to explore issues in a way that, uh, 
you can't or that is difficult in, in the present day. Um, I mean, I have my own sort of mixed views about, about rebooting in general. Um, I mean, I, I usually feel like I don't mind discontinuity mm. as much as I do, um, you know, a, a reboot that, you know, it, it kind of hurts me to think that the birds and planet of the apes, as much as I don't think it's a great movie is kind of off on its own, you know, like yeah. Yeah. they spent, you know, $60 million or something to make that. And, you know, it, it, it just exists in its own little thing. Mm. Um, you know, that kind of thing bothers me. And, and usually I would rather have, um, you know, discontinuities and incongruities, um, you know, whether tonal or, or even in terms of continuity um, than a hard reboot. But having said that, I mean, definitely in Apes, it works, at least with uh, the current three films. I mean, it's hard yeah. to imagine those. Obviously, the you know, the continuity is, is completely incommensurate, but um, it's hard to imagine, you know, a version of that story uh, set in the same universe. And, and it, it's just, you know, it works on its own so well that I don't mind that it's been rebooted. And like you said, you know, I mean, it, it reflects its own time. Mm. Yeah, I do. I think, I think that's the thing, is it? It's, it's, I know what you're saying, that a continuation... <laughs> A continuation or a um, development can sometimes be better, um, providing that continuity. But again, I think like you know, if it's done right and done well, then you you can have that. Um, you know, you can tell new stories. You know, reshape what what's come before. Um, and I do think Apes is a, is a really good example of how to do it well. I'm trying to think of other. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think Batman's actually is another relatively good example that you can you can take the Burton films uh, and the Schumacher films for what they are, um, right? But then you can also have the Nolan trilogy that stands very much alone, um, but still contributes. They all contribute really overall to the to the Batman mythos. Well, don't forget the '66 stuff. Right, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is so different. I mean. Someday somebody's going to be saying the same stuff about Affleck, uh, you know, and we're not going to believe it, but somebody will. Mm. No, it's true. I think I think that's what's yeah, you know, there'll be a, a, a take doing something different and a different take. I think you know, if if you're going to do it well, it's it's fine. It's when it's done, um, if it's done cheaply or done a little bit. Clunkily again, like right, the take RoboCop. RoboCop is a series where the first film is amazing, the second one isn't bad, but it's not, you know, as good. It's, I don't think it holds up as well as the first one. You know, it really is a Frank Miller, um, yeah, fest. The third one's horrendous. Um, yes, but then they, so, but then they tried to do the reboot, and in doing the reboot, they tried to sort of make it a modern. They tried to do a modern satire. But without the the skill of a Verhoeven, it comes across as heavy-handed and watered down. Um, I agree. But that doesn't mean I... that, that Robocop couldn't have say something important about modern, especially now we're looking at like full-on drone warfare about modern, you know, modern technology. Oh, absolutely, and and also sort of like 
you know, this rise of AI where you have, you know, the sort of like automated, uh, you know, police units versus, you know, a cyborg. And, mm. you know, uh, we're all cyborgs now, or we soon will be. I mean, everybody who's got a pacemaker is a cyborg. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, you know, we are altering our bodies and, and, you know, you know, I mean, obviously transhumanism is, is advocating that, but I mean, there will come a day at which this is, you know, feasible. Um, I, I definitely feel like RoboCop is, is quite primed for that. Although I'm a huge fan of RoboCop too. I mean, it's definitely not as deep as one, but you know, RoboCop two was like, uh, when I was a kid, it was astounding, you know? Mm. Um, but I mean, I, I was wondering, listening to you talk, I was wondering like you, one thing that keeps occurring to me is, why has Planet of the Apes had so much success as a franchise? Um, you know, as a sci-fi franchise that it's it's been rebooted. I mean, it's had a short-lived animated series, a short-lived series, you know, three separate continuities, um, at least, you know, mm-hmm. depending on how you count the, uh, the animated one. But, you know, you think about, like, you, you know, this is all based on a French novel, you yeah. know? There's no right, and and the basic premise is apes have taken over the world, right? I mean, this is not the deepest material to hang a franchise on, and yet because it's maybe because it's um, so malleable, it can be rebooted in a way that, like, when we get like the next Dune reboot, it's all going to be about like how faithful are you to that novel. Yeah, You know, that world is so much more fleshed out and detailed and feels sacrosanct uh, that it doesn't lend itself to kind of, you know, a, a franchise in quite the same way that, you know, I wonder if there isn't a kind of like, you know, not necessarily an uncanny valley, but a kind of like, um, you know, in the bell curve of, say, like, with superficiality on one end and depth on the other there's a kind of like happy medium where Mm. these themes are invoked that we're talking about sort of innately due to the subject matter. And yet it's not so nailed down. It doesn't feel so sacrosanct that you can only do um, that material in a certain way. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's true. And I think if you, if you were to ask, if you were to ask a hundred people, as they came out of um, seeing any one of the the modern Caesar trilogy and said, ask them, do you know that this was actually originally based on a French novel? I, I can probably admit that, you know, a good 90% of them wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about. Right, um, exactly. So, you know, it's that thing, it's a bit like, one of the things I'm looking at at the moment is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book called uh, Nothing Lasts Forever, and it's the book on which Die Hard is based. Now, I uh, and, and I've said to people, oh, yeah, I am reading this book, and the people have said, I didn't, I didn't know Die Hard was based on a book. Um, and again, the same for both the other films I've done in in this series. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is based on a film called a book called Who Censored Roger Rabbit, and obviously uh, the bo- <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers is based on the book called Body Snatchers. But if you were to ask people, no one knows. So there's no um, 
there's no sort of no one's holding on to of yeah fidelity. That's it. Yeah, yeah, no one's holding on to that source material to say, well, no, this is it. This is the definitive version. Uh, well, in many cases, it probably isn't because, you know, the, the different iterations you've had of the Body Snatcher story each tell the tale of a different era. You know, um, 56, 78, 93, 2007, all very, very different stories, varying quality. But, not, you know, they've all got little bits from that original novel, but they tell a different story and i think the same with the apes you know you you can take that concept and work with it um and you can have those themes keep it entertaining but as soon as you introduce something like lord of the rings dune uh many comics you know people hold up that source material and the moment you try and deviate from it they just throw an absolute shit fit (laughs) yeah yeah i agree and, you know, but I think there's also something, you know, like talking about the themes of the original film. I mean, you know, probably the, those thematic resonances are stronger, are, are strongest in the first film. Mm. But, you know, you can spin. I mean, obviously, you know, you could do like a, um, you know, talking about like where the franchise could go. I mean, you could do like a Mad Max Fury Road with apes just fighting other apes with very little dialogue and, you know, have it be like a chase movie and it's just and beautiful and, you know, you, you could do that and yeah. it wouldn't have any of that thematic density, but it would be amazing to look at. And you could also go, you know, another direction and, and, and do a sort of like, not that anyone would necessarily want this, but a, but a kind of... Um, you know, super dense kind of uh, art house movie of, you know, just teasing out one of these themes with some of the characters um, that could be a lower budget movie, could, but could be like a really beautiful, uh, morally complex tale. Mm. And Ape lends itself to that in a way that, you know, uh, some of those other franchises don't. Um but it's just it's just something that sort of puzzles me. I mean, if you thought about what would be, you know, one of the longest, most successful franchises, I don't think you'd you'd intuitively think Planet of the Apes was going to be one. No. Um, just based on that first film or based on the novel. No. And it makes me think, I mean, I I I'm just sat looking at um, you know, some of some of the Blu-rays and films and books and stuff I've got to sit around and something that's that sort of just struck me talking about this compared to the others is a lot of the stuff you know you've said about that has a, um, a certain type of longevity or fidelity to a source material is character based so if someone gets hooked up on a certain character um, you know then if you change something around their mythology or their you know their design or whatever then they, they get upset they get nervous but with planet of the apes i think the, the the point you made before as well is this is actually more based around a pitch the pitch is apes have taken over the world go and i think that's the thing is like, you know, as long as you sort of stick around that like you say that, that it's so malleable to actually change it to be well if we, what, what happens if we take it from this angle or you know 
well, what about this? Or, you know, I've never thought of it doing this way. Or we actually wrote ourselves into this corner by destroying the world. What do we do next? Um, you, you're not sort of... You're not sort of constrained by those, um, you know, th- those things of fidelity or having to sort of keep a character as, as true to themselves. Like, you know, Captain America or Batman or Judge Dredd or Sherlock Holmes or whatever. Like, you know, in that, Sherlock Holmes is probably a, a, a slightly different example, but you're not hung up on that kind of uh, need to be honest, uh, to be honest, to be as loyal to the source material, which is a good thing. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I don't know how much you've explored the uh, Planet of the Apes comics, but, um, you know, uh, there's some cool stuff in there that, Mm. you know, sort of jumps around the timeline. And, you know, you've got like Kong versus Planet of the Apes and uh, stuff like that. And, um, you know, it does sort of seem to suggest to me that, you know, you can take, I mean, you know, there's this... um, uh, you know, there's this series now that that's sort of like retelling the uh, first film from uh, what's his name, uh, Ursula, Ursula, uh, uh, the perspective of you know the main uh, you know military bad guy oh, in uh, yeah, yeah. the first Apes movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, you you think like uh, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to, I mean, you could do lots of you know just kind of spin-off films featuring different characters and just kind of show their perspective that it does have that malleable thing and i hadn't thought about what you're saying about not having a central character but you know in that sense it's more like uh star wars than uh you know than batman or something Mm. yeah it's a universe and that's the thing that that those five stories i mean you know you sort of end up with a, a it's, it's, you end up with a sort of a saga, you know. It's, it becomes a family saga, I suppose, um, yeah. rather than centering on on specific characters. Um, it's it's like the Godfather, but with apes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think maybe that's maybe that's why those films do work so well. Um, over time, you know, you can go back and you watch Star Wars and you watch all of them regardless of people's opinions of whatever's been released, but you're not beholden to a certain character, like I say, or Godfather, or, or those other things, because you, you, are, you are literally following a story, chapter by chapter. Right, and, and even though, I guess, the, you know, the, the world of apes is, is more malleable, I mean, it, it, it's less, you know, obviously there have been reboots, and, you know, you don't know even what, the whole of the earth looks like, you mm. know, it, it's less fleshed out than, than star Wars seems to be. Um, but it does have that same sense of generational saga and being able to tell the story anywhere, which I think, you know, you're right. It, it, it gives it a kind of depth, um, or a kind of malleability that, that helps it to survive, uh, in a way that, you know, Dune or 2001 or, or Blade Runner or something like that, uh, you know, hasn't at least as a franchise. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a, a really good point, and I think that's why it's it's a, it's a good conclusion to come to really about these films. That there's a reason, no matter how accidental it was, that these films, those first five films, and I think that they mirror it with the, the, the you know the modern trilogy. That the idea is that it is a saga. This is a family saga. So the next films could be following. Um, 
the next generation or even a couple of generations down the line and it would it would still work this is a this is this is yeah it's an epic it's a saga i quite like the idea of that rather than it being uh yeah yeah well i mean one of the things that i like most about that idea is you know i mean you mentioned that it's a generational saga one of the things that i like about it you know despite that there are aspects of it that that you know like the mutants that don't quite work for me Mm. uh even though they're kind of cool is you know that there's an aspect of a civilizational saga and i've always liked that kind of like sense of watching history play out Mm. um you know so many movies i mean even in like the the current trilogy that so many movies end with uh you know the pandemic right i mean the yeah. first movie ends that way. And, you know, we've seen that a million times before, but we don't usually see, like, the two movies after, you know, that in which humanity is rebuilding, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, what happens next? How does civilization recover? How does history work? Um, I think that's that's one thing that I really dig about uh, both sets of movies that, you know, again, ignoring the Burton one for a moment, that you know you see not just uh, some core characters but you have a sense of history moving and civilization collapsing and rebuilding and you know the way in which this happens uh for better or worse or its weaknesses and its strengths and i love that broad historical scope stuff I think you're right, and the one thing that I'm, you know, you, when you say that, that it really strikes me is, if I was to take this to a different medium, um, you know, especially if you look, at, if you look at comics, there's an agelessness to 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 characters, you know, like Superman will never look fifty or well, unless it's a sort of slightly different as if story or elseworld, and the same with that. But um, <coughs> if I think of Judge Dredd, uh, the Judge Dredd of two thousand AD has progressed like year on year. You know, it started in I think like twenty ninety something and is now in like two twenty one whatever. Judge Dredd has aged from nineteen seventy seven when he was first published to now. Um the character has aged and throughout that you've had writers, you know, through late seventies, through the eighties, through the nineties and the early two thousands that have, have grown up with different influences and have grown up uh, and they've got different opinions and different sort of political leanings. And new characters have come into that, or new fads as well, and new stories that have um, that have contributed to that growing world. Um, but everything exists. So, you know, the the the, the apocalypse war that happened in the sort of um, early eighties between uh, the Mega City One and uh, the Russian counterpart that ended up in nuclear apocalypse on the Russian side still stands like that still has consequences Uh now sort of 30 years later and so do other stories like characters will crop up and other things will have consequences and like you say it's the same with this like these sagas this history playing out doesn't happen very often and it's actually it's really interesting to see how like that mirrors the real world and and how that continuity is actually handled yeah, and I'm a huge uh, fan of exactly, you know, exactly that about Judge Dredd, that, you know, 
that sense of unbroken continuity, that sense of not, you know, aging in real time, not mm-hmm. having a sliding time scale. And, you know, you certainly do see that in, uh, in the apes films. Um, you know, obviously I guess the, the, um, uh, Caesar trilogy covers like what about 12 years, something like that. Um, but it'd be great to continue to see it kind of grow. And, you know, in a sense like that, I mean, that's what people love about the walking dead, right? Mm. That it just keeps going on and it's sort of like, well, what comes after, you know, it all starts with where most movies end, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I think that, you know, so I do think that, I don't think people talk about the Planet of the Apes as much as they used to. I think, there was, you know, um, maybe the modern films, it sort of ignited a little bit of interest. But I do think that those, those, despite some of the budget-driven flaws in the later films, I think they really, that, that first five series really deserves a, a revisit and people should go back and actually check them out. I mean, oh, really... I agree completely. And every time, like, you know, AMC will sometimes, like, rerun, um, you know, at least over here, um, you know, uh, it'll rerun the whole saga, uh, mm. maybe, like, once a year. And I'll just sit and watch all five, eight movies in a <laughs> row. <laughs> you know? And, you know, and I, you know, they've got commercials, but I can, you know, sort of fast forward through yeah. them on the DVR and have a meal and come back and, you know, fast forward through the commercials and... Boy, they really work as a saga. Um, yeah, and they—they they, say they're long. They're only, they're quite short. These are seriously bingeable. You could do these in a, like if you. I suppose you could do this in a day, really, if you really wanted to. Um, but yeah, over a couple yeah, of days like or whatever. Watching you a, it's like watching a season on Netflix or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is technically, I suppose, because it's just a series of episodes. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely recommend that. I think anyone who's listening should really go and seek out you could easily pick up the i think you can pick up a whole box set of all of them now um but definitely worth tr- tracking these down um when i've got them on dvd and i'm really thinking of upgrading them to blu-ray um really worth tracking them down and having a having a sit and go through those original five films yeah i second that uh very much i mean i i would even go as far as say you know uh, you can't be, you know, a, a real fan of uh, sci-fi without, you know, knowing how that those five films kind of play out. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's one of those milestones that, like you say, you you have to have seen and, and appreciate. It's up there with two thousand and one. Um, yeah, there's a couple of others I can think of. Like you say, you have to have said you've seen or experienced to say, yeah, I, I'm a a true sci-fi fun yeah and, and and again i mean i think that's that's terrific praise despite you know like you said you know you watch the budgets declining over the series <laughs> yeah. but um despite that i mean uh you know and there are stronger and, and and weaker uh you know sort of chapters in that saga but um it, that's quite uh an achievement for a, a series that really starts with one movie and then it's just like well what do we do next yeah um you know i mean it, it really it really works so surprisingly well and stands up despite its its obvious you know weaknesses here and there um you know and and not something that you'd expect or that was intended and 
um, works much better than, say, uh, you know, I mean, nobody cares about the 2001 sequels, right? No, I've seen 2010 um, with Roy Schneider. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not. I mean, it's like a, a parallel universe continuation or something. Um, yeah, totally. And totally even the novels. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you don't feel like, oh, you know, you've turned this cool original movie into a saga and actually done it convincingly. Mm. Um, you know, and I think uh, I can't think of another example that does that uh, remotely as well as as Abe's. No, yeah, I think it, it, it deserves the credit for it, really. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's been. I think we'll sort of we'll start to wrap it up there. But that's been uh, sure. Any last thoughts then you want us to give? Just quick, any last thoughts on the Apes uh, film or any of the rest of the saga? Well, I. Just want to say, uh, I can't wait for the apes to take over. Um, <laughs> I have no attachment to human civilization. I mean, as long as the apes, uh, you know, once they progress enough to have, um, you know, concerts and the internet, uh, I'm fine. Uh, but, you know, let's let the apes have a turn because they can't possibly do worse than we have. Very good point. I'm all for it. I, sec- I second that motion. And, uh, yeah, I'm into that. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, we'll, just well thank you so much. No, is there anything else you want to, just before we go, then, or just before we wrap it up, anything else you want to plug or uh, bring attention to? Well, um, you know, I'm always uh, making comics, uh, mm-hmm. Martian Lit, and if you go to Comicsology and do a search for Martian Comics, uh, you can find uh, all of our titles there. And we have two Secord books edited by... Uh, uh, Rich Handley and Joe Bernardo. Uh, Rich is one of the foremost apes experts. In fact, if you you know Google um, you know rare uh, apes pages and stuff, uh, you know his name will come up real quick. And he edited along with Joe Bernardo, um, who's a pop culture expert, um, a couple books for us at Secward. One on uh, you know the apes movies and animated series and live action series and the other on you know the comics and the novels and so we cover all of that and uh, they're pretty awesome books. Awesome. So if you want to know more, check out uh, sequat.org and they're on there. Uh, or I suppose they're on Amazon as well. Actually, you can search for them on Amazon uh, and uh, other places as well. Brilliant. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. No, thank you. That's brilliant. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That was us. Way back when, younger, slimmer, probably with more hair, uh, uh, and talking about Planet of the Apes, the entire Planet of the Apes uh, series, really, the original series. Uh, and yeah, so Julian, you know, it was, it was a, the, the, I'm just going to touch it. This is still however long later. They're still great films. I still sort of enjoy a lot of these films. What are your thoughts, even now? I agree with former past Julian. Uh, yeah. these, are, these are awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, I think especially that first one is a touchstone. So, I mean, if you had to give a rating to Planet of the Apes, what would you, just the first one, uh, yes. what would you give it? Out of 10. Yes. Um, it's, 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 it could be a sliding scale, really. I'm, I'm going to say it's a seven, really. It's a solid seven for me. Um, it is good. It's aged surprisingly well. Um, uh, I think one of the things is obviously it's 
because it's sort of influenced so much, um, it, it does sort of feel cliched, but uh, it, you, you can go back to this film and, and you can enjoy it. So I'm going to say 7 out of 10. What about you? Uh, well, ding, 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 ding. You had the right answer because that's what <laughs> I was going to say. Um, I actually, for a while, I actually thought I would give it an 8. And then I looked back and I thought, yeah, you know, that's a little generous. I mean, it is awesome. I think the the first one especially feels like a Star Trek episode, just like a really well-made mm. sci-fi episode. But I think it's more a seven than an eight. But it's definitely, I can see somebody going an eight on it. Um, mm. So, you know, yeah, seven works for me. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed this sort of trip back in time. And, uh, you know, this is just one of our, a couple of our bonus episodes that we're going to be doing between seasons uh, and other bits and pieces. So, as usual, thank you, Julian, for your time. Uh, this seems like a, this was a doozy. This was, <clears throat> this was some hard work, this one, wasn't it? Absolutely. I'm sweating. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, uh, thank you, listeners. Um, and uh, we'll catch you uh, in our next bonus episode. <laughs>